Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the White House Summit for Democracy and get an assessment of the first day's events that featured three-minute statements from 110 world leaders via video in what could be described as a heads-of-state Zoom meeting. Joining us is Stephen Feldstein, a senior fellow in the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's Democracy, Conflict and Governance program, where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights, U.S. foreign policy and Africa. The author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics and Resistance, he previously served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau in the United States Department of State, and was the Director of Policy at the United States Agency for International Development, and also served as counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. We'll discuss the research he does on how artificial intelligence is reshaping repression and the geopolitics of technology, and given criticism of the summit coming from the Chinese Communist Party, we will look into China's role in advancing digital authoritarianism, and whether at this summit, Healthy democracies can call out the leaders of backsliding democracies like India, Brazil, and the Philippines. Then we look into the health of our own democracy at home under attack from the new GOP owned by Trump, who, after a failed coup attempt on January the 6th, is now in a much better position to succeed in creating his own one-party state. Joining us is Daniel Zeiblatt, a professor of government at Harvard University and the director of the Transformations of Democracy Group, at the WZB Berlin Social Science Center, where he studies Europe from the 19th century to the present. He is the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, and his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Stephen Levitsky, is How Democracies Die. Then finally, we will speak with Robert Shapiro, a professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, whose books include The Rational Public, 50 Years of Trends in Americans' Policy Preferences, and Politicians Don't Panda, Political Manipulation and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness. He joins us to discuss how, in spite of the success of much of Biden's ambitious agenda and an improving economy, the perception persists that the Biden presidency is in trouble when, given his slim majority, he is being remarkably transformative. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Stephen Felstein, who is a senior fellow in the Carnegie Endowment of International Peace's Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights, U.S. foreign policy and Africa. He previously serves as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau of the United States Department of State and was a Director of Policy at the United States Agency for International Development and also served as counsel on the United States Senate Committee 
of Foreign Relations. And he's published research on how artificial intelligence is reshaping repression, the geopolitics of technology, China's role in advancing digital authoritarianism, and COVID-19's effect on democracies, and is the author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Felstein. Thanks for having me on. So, Stephen, do you think that a lot of what you're writing about and studying here, particularly the notion of the rise of digital repression and how artificial intelligence is reshaping repression and China's role in advancing digital authoritarianism, it's worth noting, of course, that the, the Chinese government is, is pretty miffed at this democracy summit taking place at the White House, the Summit for Democracy over these two days starting today and tomorrow. And they're trying to make an argument that they have a, their own form of democracy that works in many ways better than ours in terms of delivering for the people. So the element of, of repression uh, is certainly not in any of the uh, Communist Party propaganda that's coming out now in defense of the fact that they're not being invited. So I guess two points. One is it's clearly got this summit's got under Xi Jinping's skin. And two, how would China's democracy be without repression? Well, it wouldn't go very far. I mean, uh, I think a, a big part of how China's governance is premised is premised on coercion uh, and, you know, also providing benefits, uh, inducements to people who are within the CCP. Uh, and so in that sense, without having fear, because they certainly don't have the consent of the governed uh, all the time or most of the time, uh, there would be very little in which to, to base uh, Xi Jinping's rule. And so the idea that somehow they are a democracy, even though they don't hold elections, even though they completely circumscribe political freedoms and are afraid to allow their citizens to access the wider internet, uh, you know, it really is a misleading mischaracterization uh, of the word. So... The handout that they're giving to the press now in uh, Beijing and, and across China and in terms of their government's efforts at propaganda in general around the world is that their system is democracy that works. So can you counter that by saying that our democracy is working? Because surely we have a threat here at home, don't we, from the Republican Party, which is now Donald Trump's party, the GOP. They're engaged in massive voter suppression, which would indicate that by 2021 and certainly by 2024, we could have a one-party state here in the United States. That's very grim. Uh, well, let, let, let me let me address this in 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 two different ways. Uh, so, you know, first of all, in terms of China's argument or claim that theirs is an economy or a country that works, uh, and and you know, other real democracies don't work. You know, I would dispute that. I mean, I think frankly, they cover up. Uh, a lot of the problems that are are occurring in China, whether it's corruption, centralization of power, or persecution of anyone who doesn't uh, align with Xi Jinping's viewpoint. So the idea that they are a, a system that works uh, without fail, I think, is is very much overstated. Uh, second point is, uh, you know, democracies uh, go through lots of ups and downs, and uh, there are a lot of significant problems that the United States is facing, without question. Uh, you know, and and. Uh, you're right, especially when it comes to what we've seen from the Republican Party and from Donald Trump, uh, its current standard bearer. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of room for alarm. Uh, so I don't think I think we have to take that seriously. I don't think we can shirk uh, and talk around that. Uh, you know, what I would say is that the one of the big capacities that democracies bring is a resilience and ability for self-correction. 
I hope that is something that the U.S. is able to do. And that is the bet that I think a lot of us are making when it comes to Biden and what can happen over the next few years, despite uh, some very gloomy trends at the moment when it comes to voter suppression, as you've mentioned, when it comes to, uh, you know, gerrymandering and other uh, related issues. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, it, it, we are at a crossroads in the U.S., but I still have confidence that we can find a way out of it in a much better fashion than uh, if I were a citizen uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in China. So, Stephen, what, what's happening now in terms of how is this working out in terms of a format for a two-day summit? Did the 111 world leaders get like three minutes on the podium? Or do you have a dialogue? Will people be able to challenge a couple of the um, democratic backsliders like the Prime Minister of India and also Bolsonaro of uh, Brazil? Right, not to mention Duterte of the Philippines. There's a, there's a few of them out there. So, um, you know, so, you know I, so the, the day one is, is, is done. Uh, I was able to track a good portion of the proceedings today. Essentially, there are two video tracks that, that uh, are, are there. One is the kind of um, three-minute uh, head of state speeches that are given one after the other. Uh, and there is no opportunity for, uh, for dialogue there. Uh, there's a second track uh, that where you have cabinet-level officials leading uh, panel discussions uh, on big topics, whether it's you know, media freedom, they're talking about technology and democracy tomorrow, corruption uh, occurred today, uh, chaired by Janet Yellen. Uh, and there you have a limited amount of... Um, uh, of dialogue. So the invited panelists, uh, where you have members of civil society alongside some government officials, are able to make points and kind of push back. But in terms of a broader public dialogue, where you have, you know, open questions, where you can directly challenge India's backsliding or Pakistan's backsliding, uh, this is not a forum that's set up for that type of interaction, uh, at least over the two days that we're seeing. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Felstein, who is a senior fellow in the Carnegie Endowment of an International Pieces, Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights, U.S. foreign policy and Africa. He previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau of the United States Department of State and was Director of Policy at the United States Agency for International Development and also served as Counsel on the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. And he has published research on how artificial intelligence is reshaping repression, the geopolitics of technology, China's role in advancing digital authoritarianism and COVID-19's effects on democracies and is the author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics and Resistance. So is there an opportunity, though, in this two-day forum then for at least people to, I don't know whether you give them a passing grade or a failing grade, but Who's setting the standard of what a democracy is, what a healthy democracy is, as opposed to one that's under attack from authoritarianism and kleptocracy? Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good question. And, and I think, uh, to be honest, you won't be able to really get at that question in the two days happening here. This is really uh, the way the best way to think about it is a kickoff, uh, because the way the Biden administration is sort of designing uh, this this process is that. You have this summit kickoff, and then you have a year of action. Uh, and during this uh, year of action, you will have countries commit to different policies, democratic policies, reforms that they will advance. And then the hope is there will be a second summit next year in person, where you can then hold countries to account for whether they delivered on their pledges or not. So really, the idea is that in this intervening period, there will be meetings, there will be consultations, 
check-in events and so forth. And that's where citizens can say, are you delivering? Are you actually upholding the commitments you made at the initial summit when it comes to the strength of your democracy? Uh, but in terms of uh, you know holding countries to account in this two-day period, I mean, other than through normal channels, through the media, through commentary, uh, through protests, if need be, uh, there isn't much of an official venue in which to do that. So in terms of the work that you do, though, how, how would you gauge the health of the virtual world? This is a, a virtual summit that we're talking about. But in terms of the abilities of the Chinese Communist government to repress using artificial intelligence and internet policing and the government official trolls, the 50-cent cadre that they have that get 50 cents for saying great things about the Communist Party, etc. And, you know, we have in this country and in other Western countries a concern about what's called surveillance capitalism. So in general, in terms of a referendum on on where we stand for the good and the bad and the internet, I mean, the internet's a way that oppositions can organize themselves, as Navalny in Russia has shown. But on the other hand, as you, the work that you've done in China indicates that it's been a blessing for autocrats and for state control. Yeah, uh, I think we're in a real crossroads right now when it comes to the power unleashed by information and communications technologies to actually liberate, to promote freedom, uh, and to support democracy. And I think that there are a manifold of challenges. So one challenge that you mentioned uh, relates to China uh, in, in the sense that uh, there's an alternative that China is pushing uh, between its apps, between its technologies, between the type of surveillance methods that it uses that many other authoritarian countries look to and model their own systems after. And that's a really pernicious and difficult problem to deal with. And so that's that's something that, uh, you know, I think is part of the equation. But frankly, I think just as big a problem, if not a bigger problem, is the second issue you, you mentioned linked to surveillance capitalism, where essentially we are our own worst enemies when it comes to the polarizing rhetoric and disinformation that is spreading across uh, our democratic discourse and undermining the, undermining the basic foundations of truth. Uh, and so you see how well uh, politicians like Donald Trump or Bolsonaro from Brazil or Duterte from the Philippines are able to weaponize this information and promote illiberal agendas. And so, frankly, Trump or Duterte or Bolsonaro have very little to do with China, they have, but they have everything to do with weaponizing populist rhetoric and using that as a wedge to, uh, to intimidate and harass uh, their, their opponents uh, and to advance and propagate their own agendas. And, uh, and they're, they're you know, using ICT's internet technology to great effect in order to accomplish those aims. So how then do you fight back against this? I mean, the deplatforming that's taking place, you know, taking Trump off Twitter, I'm not entirely sure that that's not, in a, in a way, creating kind of a backlash. Now, of course, Trump's now... He's hired Devin Nunez, this dairy farmer from Central California with no technological background as the head of his digital rejoinder, I guess, to Facebook and Twitter. So how, what's your sense about what tools can be used against the very digital repression that we're just talking about? Yeah, I think part of the problem uh, is that it's not purely a digital issue when it comes to Trump uh, and the kind of far right uh, movement that, that uh, he, he represents. Uh, in the sense that it's a broader media media ecosystem that's at play. So there's been a lot of studies, and you know, you, you even if you look at tamping down some of the rhetoric that's happening on, let's say, Facebook or Twitter, well, you still have 
uh, call-in uh, conservative radio news shows. You have Fox News. You have OMN. Uh, you have other channels and other platforms in which this information is disseminated and circulated uh, and retweeted and reposted. And so the bigger problem is that you have a, a good swath of the population that buys into the kind of rhetoric that Trump and his cohorts are peddling. And that to stop that is now, is it's more than just uh, finding a way to have better algorithms in Facebook. That will certainly help get at one aspect of the problem, but the, the, but the bigger problem is much more complicated um, and is much more entwined in the broader media ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, and, and there are no easy answers to that. It, it's the best I can say that it requires some deeper thinking and some much harder structural choices about what American citizens want to listen to, what they want to believe, uh, and and you know how we want to live our lives in in our democracy. Well, there's certainly no easy answers to whether or not we can reestablish a consensus in this country about what is true and what is real, and that also you can expand that to the global stage as well. Isn't that a problem or any kind of post-truth era? How Absolutely. do you how do you kind of rebuild? you know, reality-based communities. Yeah. Well, I think it takes a lot of hard work. Um, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, there are lots of little steps that can make a difference, but you have to, you have to sort of bring them all together. So it's everything from, you know, you build digital literacy, you try to get better uh, behavior when it comes to platforms. So you don't uh, immediately sort of highlight the most incendiary, the most polarizing rhetoric. Uh, you try to build communities from the ground up and find ways for citizens to engage um, constructively uh, in dialogue uh, in their town so that the the um, isolation that they feel uh, and the disconnection either from their citizens or from their governance is something that is um, removed. And part of what we're really talking about is how do you rebuild democracy from the ground up, from the community level up? Uh, and I think that goes hand in hand with some of these other issues. But to me, that's the core of what we need. We need a rebirth and a reinvestment in the democratic process, starting with our local communities and, and working its way to the top. So just in the last few minutes, there's obviously, I mentioned the criticism from that preceded this summit for democracy at the White House coming from China and Russia in particular. So they kind of myth that they're not invited to the party. Then they were suggesting that the U.S. has a kind of patronizing attitude about democracy. They're the, we're the ones that decide what democracy is. So to the extent that other countries look at our democracy, they must be saying to themselves, I mean, how do you justify something like the Electoral College? Yeah, no, I mean, these are these are very fair questions. We have a lot of reform and work to do at home. And I think a lot of us sort of say there is a credibility problem to some extent uh, when you have the U.S. hosting uh, a major democracy summit. And yet the issues that need to be tackled are not really taking place in a serious way. But that doesn't mean that we then sort of throw up our hands and say, well, forget it. The democracy enterprise will go on pause until the U.S. figures out uh, how to get its own house in order. I think we have to do both things at once in that we have to continue pushing for the democratic principles, the political freedoms, the civil liberties around the world that matter, while at the same time also taking a hard look at home about painful uh, and difficult reforms that need to take place uh, when it comes to how we run our elections and how we govern ourselves. Um, and both issues are, are difficult. But I also want to say that, you know, I, I find it offensive that uh, the Putins and the Xi Jinping's of the world uh, somehow claim that we're not giving uh, credence to their type of government or how they uh, undertake things, when really they're not giving credence to their own citizens. Every time they suppress 
and and um, you know lock up uh, opponents because they're afraid of political challenges. To me, that actually is showing the both the brittleness of their regimes and also the fear they have of actually letting their citizens express what they believe, as opposed to just telling them the narrative that they ought to buy in. Uh, oftentimes uh, through coercion. Well, it's true. And Uncle Xi is creating this kind of myth of him, the avuncular guy, but he's got a lot of blood on his hands, particularly if you happen to be a Uyghur or a Tibetan. Mm -hmm. It's it's mm -hmm. not a pretty picture. So just in closing then, what would you expect by Friday evening to be the kind of printout or the readout or whatever they they say in Washington? Well, probably lots of lofty rhetoric. Uh, now let's see whether uh, countries will follow through on what they've said. Uh, we've seen a lot of high points so far today, uh, a lot of interesting uh, uh, ideas about how to improve democracy, why it's important, why it matters for citizens. Uh, but those are words. And so uh, I think people will sort of say, well, now what? Uh, will countries actually follow through on what they've said and what they, what they are, are claiming? Uh, or is it a summit where there were nice words and very little action? I think that is the big pressing question we'll have to figure out over the coming weeks and months. Well, Stephen Felstein, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I mean, speaking with Stephen Felstein, who's a senior fellow in the Canadian Endowment of International Peace's Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights, U.S. foreign policy and Africa. He previously served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau of the United States Department of State and was the Director of Policy at the United States Agency for International Development and also served as Counsel on the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and he's published research on how artificial intelligence is reshaping repression, the geopolitics of technology, China's role in advancing digital authoritarianism, and COVID-19's effect on democracies, and is the author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the health of our own democracy here at home under attack from a new GOP owned by Trump, who, after a failed coup attempt on January the 6th, is now in a much better position to succeed in creating his own one-party state. Because she knows that it's demanding to defeat the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Zeiblatt, who's a professor of government at Harvard University and the director of the Transformations of Democracy Group at the WZB Berlin Social Science Center, where he studies Europe from the 19th century to the present. He is the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. And his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Stephen Levitsky, is How Democracies Die. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Zeiblatt. Yes, nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly at the White House today and tomorrow as well, President Biden is focused on, with about what, 110 other leaders from 
110 countries around the world, they're focused on <laughs> keeping democracy alive. But how much do you think is there in the background that sense of the work that you and Stephen Levitsky did in How Democracy Die, the sense that uh, the examples are out there for all to see? Well, I think it's to be applauded what he, what uh, President Biden's uh, trying to do, because what one sees around the world is that democracy is certainly under siege. The number of autocracies in the world has grown quite dramatically. Hungary, Turkey, Venezuela, countries that were democratic, that have experienced democratic backsliding. And the U.S. has now entered the ranks of those other countries. And so I think, you know, this is to be applauded to try to, to bolster up democracy around the world. And what about the sense, though, that it's hard not to notice the irony that here we have democracy in America threatened, particularly with the massive and comprehensive Republican assault on the vote, both in terms of gerrymandering, voter suppression, legislatures being able to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they can change it. And now it's becoming more and more clear that there's a concerted and orchestrated effort underway to get sort of stop the steal Republican zealots uh, running local election offices and boards where they're driving the traditionally neutral people away and putting in their own partisans. So this is happening before our eyes. Do you think this is something that, I mean, other st other countries surely see it. Do you think we in, in this country get it? Does the Democratic Party get it, that they're uh, facing an existential threat? Well, I think one way to think about this democracy summit is you know, for many years, Americans like to think of themselves as the kind of shining city on the hill, and we would tell the rest of the world how do they run their democratic institutions. What we're seeing today is that the U.S. is in the same fight. I mean, we are in the trenches, along with lots of other countries, facing many of the same dynamics of democratic retrenchment. And so, you know, we have something to learn from other countries, and other countries have things to learn from us. And we're all Anybody who's a small D Democrat around the world faces very similar struggles. And these battles have come home to the United States. And so what we see right now and, uh, you know, every day, and I think we don't really perhaps spend enough attention focusing on it, is that the greatest threat, I think, facing democracy today is not another capital siege like we experienced on January 6th, but rather a much quieter and less visible attempt to, to steal a presidential election in 2024. And all of those dynamics that you just talked about are really um, are looming in front of us. And you know, it's pretty clear to me that Republicans showed uh, in the reaction to January 6th and the, the kind of big lie that they were willing to try to steal an election. They failed, thankfully. Um, and the question, though, is what will happen in 2024? If in 2024 we end up in a situation which is quite likely that Republicans are in control of the House of Representatives, and for one reason or another, and there's a very likely process that could lead to this, the decision of selecting the president falls to the House of Representatives. Uh, if Republicans are in control of the House of Representatives, uh, I think there's little question that they would tilt the uh, throw the election to the Republican, even if the Democrat wins both the popular vote and more electoral college votes. So that that is possible. That's a possible outcome. It's a real risk. It's looming in front of us, and I think we all need to be paying attention to it. And what what can be done though in terms of this notion of plutocratic populism, which is not just here in the United States, characterized by Donald Trump, who controls the Republican Party, but around the world as well, where democracies are under assault. In the United States, arguably, we have, you know, at the bottom, you have the culture wars, riling people up at the base, and then at the top, 
you've got this kind of plutocratic capture of our politics, which are money-driven. So he who who has the most money controls the most of our politics. Isn't isn't that pretty fundamental? Yeah, that's a big part of the story. I mean, the, 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 the point I would make about populism, plutocratic populism, or any form of populism that pe- people use the label populism and the kind of conceit is that they speak for the people or the majority of the people. But I think really when you look around the world, all of these movements, whether Viktor Orban, whether Donald Trump and, and the, the MAGA faction, in any, in any of these cases, they don't represent the majority of the people. The majority of the people in most democracies are pretty thoroughly democratic. So the way these movements gain power is by claiming they speak on behalf of the people and then using our institutions, uh, which often favor, there's certain parts of our institutions that favor minor, uh, electoral minorities. And so you can think in the US, the Senate, the Electoral College, which overrepresents small and rural states. Uh, if one plays the game correctly and, and cleverly, one can uh, access power without winning a majority of the vote. And so I think that's the biggest Threat and so the way that this really happens, I think now in the U.S. is uh, is through voter suppression, through you know through lower voter turnout, and when and so you know one of the things that has to happen is we need to defend the right to vote. And so there's bills in front of the Senate right now to defend the right to vote, to expand the right to vote, to ex- extend protections to the right to vote. The more people that vote, the safer our democracy is. I mean that's the good news. The bad news is that there's a real concerted effort underway to make sure that the majority doesn't speak. So there are, you know, there are the Democrats are, you know, pushing these bills in the House. Certainly, they've passed it in the House. They now sit in front of the Senate, and there is an incredible urgency uh, to uh, protecting the right to vote. And that's one major thing that can happen immediately. One other thing I could just say, if I might, the. You know, the Democratic coalition, that's, again, a small D Democratic coalition that cuts across both uh, the anti-MAGA Republicans as that this is to the degree they exist, as well as Democrats, is a broad coalition. It's a, and, and it has to be broad in order to defeat this kind of movement. The, the vulnerability of this big movement, though, is that it's very heterogeneous. I mean, there's lots of people, lots of different stripes. And so there's the potential for lots of infighting. But I think for democracy to be secured, this group needs to recognize um, that the threat is very real. And whatever other disagreements we have, we have to understand that the threat of a kind of uh, revenge of the MAGA movement, um, meaning they come back into power, is real. And so all our eyes should be focused on that. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Zyblatt, who's a professor of government at Harvard University and the director of the Transformations for Democracy Group at the WZB Berlin Social Science Center, where he studies Europe from the 19th century to the present. He's the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, and his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Stephen Levitsky, is How Democracies Die. Well, that's one of the most alarming things. In fact, there's a very good cover article in The uh, the Atlantic by Barton Gelman, which is making the argument that what happened on January the 6th with the insurrection was a kind of rehearsal, a coup attempt that came close but since then, the Republicans and Donald Trump have gotten themselves better organized, and we were hanging by a thread back then, and it was only because of a couple of decent Republicans in uh, in the Secretary of State's offices in both um, Georgia and Michigan that the votes weren't overturned, as Trump had demanded in a phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. So do you get the feeling, though, apropos of the discussions today about global democracy and the threats from the encroachment of plutocracy and kleptocracy and authoritarian leaders, 
do you get the feeling that people in this country, by and large, and I mentioned this earlier, and the Democratic Party itself, do you think they understand the threat that they're facing? Are they really alert and up to the challenge? Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I, you know, there certainly a lot of members of Congress, a lot of our politicians, a lot of our citizens, our fellow citizens are aware of this. But my, my concern, I guess, is that other issues begin to supersede it. And so, you know, there's this kind of distracting issues about, you know, woke culture or critical race theory. And, you know, whether whatever one thinks of these things, these are not the same kind of threat as the MAGA movement. You know, and so the, the main thing is to not be distracted by other issues. I mean, I think it's pretty clear Americans understand the threat. I mean, that's why at the end of the day, Joe Biden and uh, won the presidency and Democrats won. And I think the kind of crystallizing fear that kind of held everybody together was the recognition that uh, President Trump was was both reckless and, and dangerous for um, for American democracy and our society as a whole. So I think the concern is that, you know, the defeat of Trump that, that doesn't mean the defeat of Trumpism. Uh, I think the movement has, in fact, been kind of invigorated by the big lie and this idea that the election was stolen. And so we need to continue to stay focused on it. And it's hard to do that, I think, because once there's a natural tendency, and this is, you know, at midterm elections, Democrats uh, or whoever the party, the party in power usually doesn't do well in midterm elections, you know, two years after a presidential election. And it's very natural because you think, okay, now we've won. We're in a position of, you know, we're in the, the, the kind of driver's seat here. We don't have to worry. But, you know, we have to remember, you know, this is not just a normal alternation of government. I mean, what's so amazing is that we normally think, you know, if you have an alternate one government, one party loses, the other party comes into power. Maybe they do things you don't like. That's just sort of normal democratic politics. The situation we're in today, though, is that there's this real fear that if the other side wins, our whole democracy will collapse. So, you know, the idea that each national election is going to be emergency is, is really kind of remarkable. But that's the situation we're in. And I think we have to remain focused and vigilant about this. And so, you know, pressure needs to be applied to to our Congress people and kind of, you know, to, to, so that they understand that voting rights need to be protected. And another thing that I would kind of direct your listeners to, to pay attention to is something called the Electoral Count Act, which was passed in the 1870s, which governs the way um, that elect the electoral college works. And so you can kind of Google this, look this up, and there's efforts underway to reform this because part of this, it's a kind of outdated law that gives the vice president kind of insufficient discretion or allows the, the House of Representatives to throw out an election result essentially if they don't like it. And so there, there's efforts underway to kind of tighten up these rules to make it so that the presidential election can really reflect the result of the will of the people, which of course is what a democratic election is supposed to be about. So I would direct, you know, and, you know, suggest to your listeners to kind of look up these things, pay attention to these detailed, often which may seem like obscure rules about how elections are run, but the 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 the, the other side is paying attention to these obscure rules. And so to defend our democracy, we need to, you know, anybody who's a Democrat, whether Republican or a Democrat, as, and I say anybody who's a small D Democrat, needs to pay attention to these rules and to understand this is where these battles will be fought and lost. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, then, how is it, though, that we accept the fact that we're the only democracy, or at least as far as I know, uh, advanced democracy, where the person who gets the most votes doesn't necessarily win? I'm talking mostly about the presidency, of course, with the Electoral College. And more often than not, lately, that's been the case. Donald Trump was three million short in 2016, and yet he became president. And then, you know, we've had other examples as well. On the other side, you know, I think John Kerry was about five million short, and he almost won in 
Ohio. So why do we tolerate that? I mean, is there any way to have a real discussion about that anomaly? Because it seems in many ways that the Constitution is an antique document that was written for a bygone age and desperately needs to be updated. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think one way to think about this is that there's the acute crisis of the coming 2022 and 2024 elections, and we need to focus on that. So on the one hand, on the other hand, we need to think of these longer term reforms. I mean, I, I you know, I think we should, you know, get rid of the electoral college. We're the only presidential democracy in the world with an electoral college. It's a it's a pre-modern, pre-democratic institution. Um, and that the, the barriers to ref making constitutional reforms are, are really high. And so it's not something that's going to happen in the next two years. It's not going to happen before the 2024 election. I mean, this is something that is a project, though, that needs to be on the agenda. So I'm really grateful that you brought it up because people need to pay attention to this. Think about this. And, you know, and there may be those who say, well, kind of, you know, that we need an electoral college to help you know, represent rural areas and so on. You know, every major democracy in the world, no major democracy in the world, no democracy in the world has this institution and yet democracy survives. So it's sort of like the appendix of our, of our political system. It's this kind of institution that's there that doesn't really do anything. And only uh, kind of, we only notice it when, it when it kind of explodes on us and works against our democracy. And so I think it's something that ultimately there should be a movement to abolish it. So what can be done, though, about the disproportionate power of the rural red states, like Wyoming, et cetera, yeah, uh, opposed so, to California? Because, I mean, there have been some talk that the Democrat, of course, on the Democratic side, you've got a couple of small states, Delaware and, and uh, Rhode Island, that tend to vote Democrat. But by and large, there's no question that the rural Republican states, and, and there is a rural-urban divide in this country, and a, along with the red-blue divide. So is it feasible to make Washington, D.C. a state or uh, Puerto Rico a state, or is that going to fix the problem? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's hard to change the Senate. I mean, this is really embedded pretty strongly in the Constitution, uh, but it is possible to add states. I mean, I, I think the way to think about it is less to justify these kinds of reforms on strictly partisan grounds. I mean, people may have their own partisan motives for why we need to, you know, have urban areas more represented, but it's just on a basic democratic uh, principle grounds. I mean, the, the democracy is essentially majority rule. It's certainly more than majority rule. It's not just majority rule, but you can't have a democracy without any majority rule. And increasingly, we're in a situation where the minority rules in the United States. And so this is both in the Electoral College, where, you know, the, the, um, as you had noted before, minorities often, popular minorities often win the presidency with increased frequency. Um, additionally, in the current Senate, the 50-50 Senate, where there's 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, those 50 Democrats represent 40 million more voters than those 50 Republicans. And this, too, is not just a quirk of the recent election. This is a long-term trend. And so, over, you know, the rural areas have always been overrepresented, but because of the nature of where people move and economic geography and the partisan divide, there used to be conservative and liberal uh, urban and rural areas. But now we have this real divide where urban areas tend to be Democratic, rural areas tend to be Republican. And so what was a kind of part of our system, what which in which rural areas were always overrepresented, now has created a system in which one party benefits. The problem is when one party benefits like this, it provides the raw materials for a minoritarian movement to take power. 
And so I do think we need to reform these institutions. It requires a major reform movement. I mean, the way that constitutional reforms have happened in the United States in the past is when there's broad, social, peaceful social movements putting pressure on politicians to change course. And I think that's what we need. Well, Daniel Zeiblatt, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I mean, speak with Daniel Zeiblatt, who's a professor of government at Harvard University and the director of the Transformations of Democracy Group at the WZB Berlin Social Science Center, where he studies Europe from the 19th century to the present. He's the author of Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, and his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, co-authored with Stephen Levitsky, is How Democracies Die. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how, in spite of the success of much of Biden's ambitious agenda and an improving economy, the perception persists that the Biden presidency is in trouble when, given his slim majority, he is being remarkably transformative. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Shapiro, a professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, who until recently serves as acting director of Columbia's Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, a fellow at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. His books include The Rational Public, 50 Years of Trends in America's Policy Preferences, and Politicians Don't Panda, Political Manipulation, and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Shapiro. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's a bit of a puzzle to see how the Biden presidency, given how ambitious it is, I mean, he probably has the most ambitious domestic agenda since Ronald Reagan, and he's actually gotten a lot done. And all of the economic indicators, with the exception of inflation, and even that seems to be being cured to some extent by the lowering price of oil, why is it then that there's this perception that the Biden presidency's in trouble, you know, that he's floundering and not getting anywhere? You, you, make, you make a very good point. And he can, he can definitely point to, we can definitely point to the positive accomplishments of the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, and also an unemployment rate, which is strikingly 4.2%. It's not down to the 3.5% where it was, but it looks, looks like it's on its way there. The difficulty is, is that that seems to have been swamped in terms of the public's perception of all manner of bad news on other fronts. We're talking about the balance of good news and bad news here. Um, inflation is one piece of bad news the administration's had. But there, been, but there have been other types of bad news as well that have been significant and have got been very visible in the press. And these kinds of things have been amplified because these are the kinds of things that appeal to audiences that, journal, that journalists want, want to emphasize. Uh, what happened in Afghanistan was striking and a great news story and, and certainly negative news, not positive news. Also, the rising crime rate, which hasn't abated yet, and also what's happened at the, at the southern border. Uh, in, in terms of in, in terms of illegal immigration, so these those things are working against him, and al also the expectations and disappointment about the pandemic. Uh, now, what's happened on the pandemic is certainly not something that Biden can be faulted for. There's a lot of things that happened that were unfortunate and bad luck, and perhaps could be 
to do finger pointing with regard to the lack of uptake of vaccinations, particularly for political reasons. But but this has been this has really been bad news. And the kinds of the kinds of things that the public responds most substantially to are things that are much more concrete and tangible. And uh, the, the, the lackluster economy, even though it's picking up, is, is something. Uh, in, inflation, higher prices, partic- particularly at, you know, at the gas pump uh, as well. And then also on the, on the pandemic front, there's been, there've been ups and downs, but there's been more bad news than good news. And, and right now we're in, we're, in, we're in a spike, it looks like. And that's, that could be more bad news for the administration, uh, along with the controversies about vaccine mandates and the like. Well, let's take Afghanistan for as an example, where and there's no question that the press piled on when that was happening, but it seems very ephemeral, if not f- fickle. Now, nobody seems to care about Afghanistan. You just, you know, it's like it's gone away. So, is that yeah, to, I, is I, yeah. that because we have this kind of cable news, twenty four seven, beating of the drum? What what would explain that? Well, with regard to Afghanistan, we actually had that. As you've described it, and and that led led to uh, a decline in, in Biden's popularity rating. But I do agree with you. This is going to be ephemeral. And by the by the time of the mid the midterm election, let alone the 2024 presidential election, this is going to be a distant memory. And the fact that we that the U.S. doesn't have to deal with Afghanistan any, anymore may turn out to be much less of a negative than it than it appears to be. But 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 the, but these issues are just accumulating and adding up and and reminding people of uh, their disappointment in the uh, performance of the Biden administration, particularly in the context of the high expectations they've had. Uh, on the other hand, you know, his, his policy accomplishments, as you point out, have been really extraordinary. Uh, the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, and, and, and what, what he's trying to do now on these, the more social um, infrastructure. The problem with that, even if they're passed, the effects of those kinds of things take longer to become visible. To the public, and you know, at, at this at this moment, things look a bit, a bit more bad than you know, certainly more bad than good. But, but the big question is, come the time of the 2020 election, will things look better in a way that uh, is much more tangible and in a way that cannot be distorted by how the press covers those kinds of things? And again, I'm speaking with Robert Shapiro, who's a professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, who until recently served as acting director of Columbia's Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, a fellow at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. His books include The Rational Public, 50 Years of Trends in America's Policy Preferences, and Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation and the Loss of Democratic Responsiveness. But obviously Biden has a very, very thin majority, and it's pretty extraordinary that he's getting as much done as he is. And obviously he's having to use, use the reconciliation process and is somewhat subject to vetoes from Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. But to be fair, I think, uh, Robert, if you look at the Republican uh, opposition, the party in opposition, which is largely the Trump Republican Party, for the life of me, do they have any policies, any plans, any platforms? In fact, they don't have a platform. They no longer have a platform as they've had in the past. So why is it then that they are being relatively successful? Well, they got 74 million votes, about 8 million less than Biden did in the last election. So what explains that, that we're here we are beating up on the incumbent because he's not getting enough done when he's actually getting quite a bit done. And yet we give the Republicans a free pass when they don't seem to have 
any policies, plans, platforms, or at least I don't see them. Maybe you can tell me something that they're doing. That- oh, I, oh, yeah, I can't, well, I can't see them either, and I, I agree with you completely. There are, t- there are two things that are dominating here. There's, there are the realities of what's happening in terms of inflation and crime and all, all those kinds of pieces of bad news, and off, and which get reported by the press. And then all the, all the Republicans need to do is be in the opposition party is to criticize what the current administration is doing. And they can do that because they themselves are not in a position to uh, enact policies. That is, they, you know, they control neither the presidency nor either House of Congress. Are, okay, of course, they, the Republicans, the conservatives dominate the Supreme Court, which is, a, which is another story. But, but the, the focus will shift come election time when uh, more likely in 2024 than, than perhaps the midterm election, when the Republicans will have to be, be be more active in proposing the kinds of things they want to do and simply and not simply focus on criticizing the administration, especially in the context where the administration can point to their successes that from the standpoint of the Biden administration hopefully will be an improved situation on the public health and pandemic front and visible progress on the economy that's that that any kind of criticism that's offered will be difficult to dispute. So do you think, though, that, I mean, first of all, why is it that they seem to be able to get mileage out of the culture wars? I mean, what's happening in the country that would prioritize relatively petty culture war issues like transgender bathrooms over bread and butter issues? Well, there there, there are a couple things going on on there. One is on on those particular kinds of issues that Democrats are a little out of the uh, of the mainstream in term in terms of those kinds of things. There aren't necessarily you know majority support for those those particular kinds of things. And from the Republican standpoint, it, it, it's something further that they can criticize the Democrats on to distract the Republicans from their own priorities, you know, especially with regard to lower taxes and things things of that sort that don't benefit the, the, the working class. Even ironically, given the fact that, that, that they need the, the support of the working class, meaning less well-educated whites, in order to make the kind of uh, political breakthroughs that they've done. There, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a, bit, a bit of an irony and perversity there. Well, that is certainly one of the great ironies about today's Republican Party, where you know it's no longer the party of uh, the Chamber of Commerce, but it's the sort of party of the angry, alienated white working class voter, but at least many in the party want that to be the face of the party. So that's an extraordinary thing in itself. And I just did an interview yesterday with a political philosopher from Harvard who had been consulted by the new Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, um, mm-hmm. who consulted him over the work that he had done on on how to win back the working class, for the, you know, how the Democrats could win back the working class. And Schultz apparently took this advice seriously and had, was very successful in winning back alienated German working class voters. So do you think that there's a, a lesson there, at least from the German experience? How did the Republicans become the party of the working class when I thought that was always the purview of the Democrats? Well, in, in two ways. One is they've, be, they've benefited from the failure of, of the Democrats to perform, and, and currently it's the failure of the Biden administration to deliver in the manner that um, everyone had hoped and expected. And secondly, they've, just, they've, they've been capitalizing on these kind, kinds of culture war um, issues in a, um, in, in a significant way. 
particularly regard to all the all the uh, claims about critical race theory and, and and so forth. The one complication there is that the debate about critical race theory got may have gotten convoluted in some way with with, with how the countries had handled the, the closing of schools during the pandemic. And there was a lot of criticism of, of Democrats with regard to their support for closing schools in, in a way that um, pretty much probably didn't have to happen and probably won't happen even if there's a, an increase in the uh, threat from the pandemic going forward. There, there'll be efforts to keep schools open precisely for that reason. Well, it does seem that the results in uh, recent election in Virginia indicate that there's a lot of anxiety amongst sort of uh, suburban voters who have switched to the Democrats, but in this uh, Virginia election, they swung back the other way. And Well, it's not I, clear. It's not clear they switched to the Democrats. What happened with it for, for policy reasons, I think they voted for the Democrats. I think they voted for the Democrats because they were in, in 2020, because they were voting against Trump. And um, and and so they 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 had not shifted party allegiances, but they should, they simply switched their party vote as a function of who was who the Republicans were running for president. Keep in mind, the Republicans actually did very well in the 2020 election for other, for offices other than the presidency. Well, but it, I guess the point is that anxiety over COVID, and in particular as it relates to schools, it seems to be a pressing issue, and you, and one wonders whether. Biden has spread himself too thin on these other stimulus packages, et cetera, and not being able to focus on COVID if he can't cure it, which is difficult because a lot of the people who don't want to get vaccinated are Trump supporters. I don't know how you deal with that. But is there a messaging problem here that the Democrats and Terry McAuliffe made a mistake by suggesting that parents have no role in deciding these matters? Surely there could be some better messaging there, shouldn't? Should oh, there absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think the I think the Biden and his administration and, and the Democrats will learn from that, and we'll be and we'll be able to see what happens if the if the current pandemic pandemic spike increases and there and uh, their considerations of, of perhaps having to close things. I think the Democrats will, will give second thoughts to the idea of closing schools or even closing things in the economy and simply rely on masking, social distancing. And and the, the big thing is to rely further on testing in ways that, that we haven't before. I think that's going to that's going to become a lot more important than closing things down. Well, it is extraordinary, though, that we've just had a vote in the Senate against Biden's mandates for private industry to uh, mandate vaccination and, and other preventative me measures. Is the Senate doing that based upon their belief that the public's on their side? I mean, where? how do you deal with this massive public health issue? Yeah, they, you... they, 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 well, they, they do in the sense that the, the members of the Senate and Congress who vote, who vote against the mandates live in states where, where, where the electorates in those states oppose the mandates. And that's and that and that's what's going on there. And the Biden administration will have to figure out ways of dealing with the pandemic, short of of uh, any federal policy toward mandates and relying on states and local localities to deal with those, and to, and and to encourage ways of keeping keeping schools open and so forth. And and what's what's that's what that will involve. And the Biden administration has talked about this already: expand testing and making making it a lot easier so so that the pandemic can be tracked better. And uh, and and spikes dealt with in that way. It, it, this is real. This is really a tough issue, especially with the new variants and so forth. Right, but that indicates, doesn't it, what I suggested earlier, which is how do you get 
the kind of herd immunity that's necessary when you've got a constituency out there, which is the basically the, the pro-Trump constituency in the red states, the people that watch Fox News and uh, Sinclair, etc., and they're getting all of these messages to suggesting, you know, you've got Senator Ron Johnson saying, all you need to do is gargle with mouthwash to get rid of COVID. Yeah, so, well, that's... That that's the polar that's that's the polarizing situation that we're that we're in. And it, and and in fairness, it's not it's not just the, the conservatives and the Republicans resisting. There's still there's still some resistance in um in, in various poor communities, minority communities in the United States as as well. I mean, there's a long way to go toward vaccinating the population sure. to reach a level of herd immunity. And you got Robert Kennedy Jr., one of the one of the big yes. proponents of yes. the anti-vaxxing movement. Yeah. So what does Biden do? I mean, the more I'm I'm talking with you, Robert, the more I feel sympathetic for the president. Well, I I think I think there are are a lot lot of good reasons to be sympathetic to the president. I mean, when when he took office, it looked as though the pandemic was under control and was about to end. And it was the new variants and the resistance to the vaccination that led to a setback. And now he's now the Democrats are trying to kind of you know shift strategy. And as I, as I said, the strategy may have to turn out turn into one in which they rely on monitoring and, and tra- testing and tracking as a way of dealing with this this rather than expect a, any kind of federal mandate. It doesn't preclude, of course, and this is this is this is the case in Virginia, um, where, where, where Youngkin has, has has basically delegated uh, to localities to make their own decisions about about mandates and masks and, and so forth. That is, the state isn't going to do things, but, but localities will be able to do things. And, uh, and relying on the possibility that if things get worse, people will f- start to figure out, even those who've been resisting, that they need to uh, take the vaccine. And more importantly as well, it looks like they need to take the boosters as well to deal with the variants. So just in closing then, what do you think, if we were having an interview in the fall next year, close to the political season in the 2022 midterms, what do you think we were talking about? Well, the thing we should be talking about is the objective state of the economy and also the objective state of the pandemic at that time. And they're closely related because, if you recall, when the pandemic pandemic burst on the scene, there was a consensus among economists, both conservative and liberal, that in order to deal with the economy, they needed to get the disease under control. And if the disease is under control come the 2022 election, Mark my word, the economy will probably be picking up as well, and that will give the Democrats their best chance to minimize their losses in the midterm and possible, possibly make gains. If objectively things you know, don't look that good, the, the, the Democrats will take a beating. And when I say objectively, I mean objective and clear to the point where it cannot be readily distorted in the press. That is, people will be able to see through distortions coming from any, any segments of the press and also from the uh, Republican critics. Well, Robert Shapiro, I thank you very much for, for the conversation. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Shapiro, who's a professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, who until recently served as acting director of Columbia's Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, a fellow at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. His books include The Rational Public, 50 Years of Trends in America's Policy Preferences, and Politicians Don't Pander, Political Manipulation, and the Loss of democratic responsiveness. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes on in